Good day and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast, episode number 78. Each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip down memory lane back 50 years and re-report on all the goings on in the hockey world back then. In this episode, we're looking at the week of April 19th to 25th, 1971. This week's uh, UFC 261 is sure to be a can't-miss event. Every punch, kick, and knockout means so much more with the DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of UFC, is giving you a shot at huge cash prizes. For this weekend's fight, DraftKings is offering all players a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. If you haven't tried it yet, Fantasy MMA is easy to play. Just pick six fighters, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for advances, takedowns, and more. There's no better way to put your MMA knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Plus, don't forget about basketball and hockey, where DraftKings has even more money up for grabs throughout each week. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code THPN to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the week. That's promo code THPN to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only on DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply and see DraftKings.com for details. And of course, in addition to DraftKings, our other sponsors are Newspapers.com, who uh, enables us to get most of the content for our podcast, and the Breakwell Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. If you enjoy what we do here on the podcast each week and daily on Twitter, have a look at uh, patreon.com slash hockey 50 years. That's our Patreon page where you can subscribe to our podcast and receive each week's episode a few days early and also some very special content available only to our subscribers. That's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years. As this week dawned 50 years ago, the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, quarterfinals, divisional semifinals, whatever the heck they were being called back then, was over. Montreal Canadiens had pulled off the most stunning upset in recent memory, perhaps the most stunning upset ever, by eliminating the vaunted Boston Bruins in seven exciting games. The Rangers took out Toronto in six games and it took a like number of contests for the Minnesota North Stars to complete a slightly mild upset over a declining St. Louis Blues hockey club. Chicago was the only team to perform a sweep as they brushed aside the completely overmatched Philadelphia Flyers in four straight games. The early part of this week was filled of with, of course, the obligatory post-mortem examinations of the first round, with almost all the attention being paid to that Boston-Montreal set. Frank Mahovlich was, along with Ken Dryden, perhaps the Montreal player most responsible for the Bruins' hasty ex exit. Ted Blackman of the Montreal Gazette describes the Big M's mood as he departed Boston after that uh, thrilling seventh game win. Frank Mahovlich puffed his cigar, nursed a beer, and talked of many things, of Wales and Augusta National and Eddie Shack and the fundamentals of base running and how babysitting his three youngsters was a hell of a lot of fun until the racket began giving him a headache at about the 90-minute mark. But no matter how far the conversation wandered, what, how the topics changed, Frank kept coming back to one thing. What a game, what a series, he would say, maybe six times as the Montreal Canadiens charter jet left the vanquished city of Boston and soared back home to Montreal. Imagine that, the best we beat the best. Was I ever in a better series? No, I guess not. Really, not just because of my emotions now, but I'd have to say this was the best. The Big M should know. 
Frank's been in a few bell ringers before. There were three consecutive Stanley Cup wins with Toronto in the early 60s and another unexpected one in 1967 when the Leafs and the Big M upset the Habs. After yesterday's conclusive heroics, the past seemed pale beside it and Frank Mahavlich felt he had never known better days. Frank said, I feel 18 and the grin of a young boy winning a peewee tournament flashed across his handsome, gentle face. Frank said if we'd lost, I'd feel dead, but we didn't. And what a series. Down a game, up a game, up a goal, down a goal, right up until the seventh game. That's some team we played and it's some team we beat. Harold Case is a veteran sports columnist in the Boston Globe and in the weeks and days leading up to the Stanley Cup playoffs, Harold exercised his infinite homerism to extol the virtues of his Boston team whom he compared to the greatest hockey teams of all time. So I thought it'd be interesting to see how he reacted when the team he considered a sure thing for this year's Stanley Cup was eliminated in the very first round. Harold wrote, Weep not for the Bruins, who may have lost the seventh game to Les Canadiens, but collected enough records and adulation during the season to last them a lifetime. Weep not for Bobby Orr, who slipped off his cloud, but remember that Ted Williams batted 200 in his only World Series, and the great Ty Cobb never won a World Series. Weep not for Tom Johnson, who is philosophical enough to endure the sure barrage of second-guessing that will begin the Bruins would have won with Harry Neal coaching. Weep not for the fans who had a glorious season inflating the egos of their heroes and perhaps getting bursitis from throwing their hats on the ice. They got their money's worth and showed they knew it through the warmth of their applause for the Bruins when the blade fell. Weep not for those of us who were certain the Bruins would win, for we misread the evidence, forgot about human frailty, neglected the assets of the opposition, and put our trust in the wrong people. Something that seems to keep happening in this life. It was one of the greatest of great upsets. When the Habs won, one of the people I really wanted to hear from was the Bruins' Derek Sanderson, never at a loss of words, whatever the subject. Sanderson spoke to Bob Morrissey of the Montreal Gazette, and here's uh, some of the questions he answered for Bob. He, Derek was asked about Yvonne Cornway. We know all about Ken Dryden, about Terry Harper, Henry Bouchard, Frank Mahovlich, but what about Yvonne Cornway? Sanderson said, he's the one who surprised me most. He just can't be intimidated any longer. Now he's 100% hockey player. Yes, he's even a tremendous checker. Just try and carry the puck past him. Derek was, of course, impressed, impressed with several other Habs as well. For instance, Frank Mahovlich. Derek said somebody made a big mistake and woke him up. Hell, he was really mad. One thing, he can really handle the pill. Then there's uh, Pierre Bouchard. Derek says he's good, he's steady, and he can't be intimidated around the net. But maybe he should be a little more aggressive. Maybe he should fight more, although really you can't argue with the results in this series. Sanderson also thought that Terry Harper and Guy Lapointe, two of the Habs veteran defensemen, played very well in the series of Harper. He said he always plays well in Boston. He's good. He hit me a couple times. I think they're trying to make a, a Serge Savard out of him. Sanderson also compared Rajon Uhl and Mark Tardif. Derek says, I think Uhl's the better hockey player. He's smarter, and when he gets hit, he doesn't lose his temper. Tardif gets hit, and he sulks. He's moody, and he always wants to fight. Sanderson added, one thing, Tardif, he's got all the moves, but does he have the attitude to carry it? The Turk thought John Beliveau played really well, but he said it was John Ferguson who led the Habs. He gets them up. People think it's John, but it's not. It's Fergie who gets on the guys. A day after the series ended, Sanderson said he still couldn't believe that the Bruins were through for the year. In fact, when his alarm clock woke him up early in the morning, the first thing he thought of was the usual 10.30 practice. Derek said, now I can sleep until noon. I can sleep until noon from now until September. But I still can't believe 
that they did it to us. Francis Rosa is a hockey writer for the Boston Globe. And if you ever follow his writings, as I have to this year, he's got some strange ideas about hockey, but he is a pretty good writer, pretty good reporter. And he had this to say about the Bruins' loss. Montreal won was a team effort. Boston lost, and that too was a team effort. You can dissect the series and find all the cliches. You can also find a key play in every game, a key player, a winner, a loser, and nothing changes. Montreal won four games to three. What happened to hockey's greatest team? When and where and how did the team that finished third eliminate the record wreckers? There are almost as many opinions as there are players on both teams. Yet, in many instances, all these opinions come together. Was it rookie Ken Dryden filling the Montreal Nets to the point of frustrating the Bruins? Quite a bit. Was it Montreal's defensing of Bobby Orr over the last two games? Yeah, quite a bit. Was it the second game of the series when Montreal faced a 5-1 deficit and ended up winning the game 7-5? Yeah, it was quite a bit of that too. But maybe those are all too obvious parts of the overall picture. Look back and remember that the Bruins won six and lost eight of their last 14 games. Maybe they were going stale? Look back to the night of March 20th, the night the Bruins clinched first place. The quiet defenseman, Dallas Smith, who had a beautiful season, by the way, was in the dressing room, standing alongside goalie Eddie Johnson, and the conversation was about Tom Johnson in his first season. And basically, Dallas said, Tom had lots to work with. All he had to do was not screw it up. We don't think Tom Johnson screwed up the series against Montreal. But it just showed that everybody had this uh, feeling of, well, we're going to win. All we have to do is show up. Well, the Montreal Canadiens showed up as well. Ponchimlak is the general manager of the Buffalo Sabres, the first-year expansion team who definitely would not be taking part in this year's Stanley Cup tournament. But Punch, very well experienced in playoff hockey, had this to say, and we'll give you just a little bit of the column he wrote in the Toronto Telegram that is syndicated across Canada every week. Punch wrote, The Boston Bruins, the greatest offensive team in hockey history, are on the sidelines, and everybody is asking what happened. Well, a lot of things happened. The Bruins, for one thing, were a very aggressive team. Somewhere they lost this aggressiveness. In the series, they seemed to get more docile as each game progressed. That's what Punch noticed. And certainly when it came to the seventh game, they couldn't afford to change the format. Their stars, Esposito and Orr, didn't score a goal in the final game. And if you're going to win, you count on your stars to get you the goals. As Harry Neal used to say, your best players must be your best players. Punch wrote, it seemed to me that the Bostons didn't care enough about their defensive hockey. Their game was built around offense. I mentioned that I thought when the playoffs came around that Boston would take something off their offense to help their defense. After watching most of the series, I must say I didn't see any change in their game plan and that may have been the Bruins undoing. And we'll close off our uh, post-mortem examination of this series with a few quotes from around the hockey world uh, this week. Uh, Milt Schmidt, the Bruins GM, said regarding trades, we will deal if it helps our club, but it's hard to make a trade that will help this team. Money doesn't mean anything in the trade market anymore. If you want a first draft choice, you're going to have to give up a key player. I intend to talk shop with the other clubs but I'm not saying that we'll do anything or make any changes. Derek Sanderson talked about John Ferguson saying Fergie's a great hockey player. He can't skate, but he's a great player. Billy Ray, the Blackhawks, bowed 3-1 to the Rangers in the opener of their semifinal. And he said, this is going to be a pretty good uh, series. This was a good hockey game. The only problem was the wrong team won. 
The uh, Canadians rookie goalie, Ken Dryden, a very thoughtful guy we will come to know in the coming years, had this to say about pressure in the Stanley Cup playoffs. He says the pressure is all relative. Everything that is new is, of course, a challenge. I don't think there was any greater pressure here than with the Canadian national team in our international games. And Johnny McKenzie of the Bruins chirped in, we were champs for 78 games, but it's going to be a really long summer. Scott Young was a Toronto columnist who covered sports and journalism in general, uh, a great writer, has a very famous son. You may have heard of him, Neil. Uh, he wrote this as a tribute to uh, Ken Dryden after the series. Scott Young writes, I never saw a goalie before who, when the play becomes ultra confusing in front of him, stretches out across the goal like a lady on a chaise lounge. That is a very engaging habit he has too. No matter how hot the action, every uh, stoppage in play he greets by folding his arms over the top of his stick and leaning there like a street cleaner resting on his broom. And the last comment goes to Milt Dunnelly, a venerable Toronto columnist, who said, Tom Bowtie Johnson will be under the gun now. They're going to forget that he permitted a style of play that sold more tickets than South Pacific ever did. If he wants to save his job, he's going to have to pledge his devotion to defense for this Boston club. And now to round two. Even though the final quarter-final game between Boston and Montreal wasn't played until Sunday afternoon, April 18th, the Rangers-Blackhawks semifinal series actually began that very evening in Chicago. You know, I, I rather like the way things were done back in 1971, 50 years ago. No long, unnecessary, drawn-out delays where you could ramp up the hype. If you're ready to play and the rink was ready... The teams just got right at it. In fact, it seemed that there was great consternation around the hockey world uh, in many quarters that the Stanley Cup Finals were now routinely dragging into the month of May, for crying out loud. Little did we know what the next 50 years would bring us. And in fact, we would end up having July Stanley Cup hockey at one point. Well, the Rangers drew first blood in the opening game that was a very good predictor on how the series might go. The Rangers got a goal from Peter Stemkowski after just less than 10 minutes of extra time to give the Rangers a 2-1 overtime win right in Chicago Stadium. Most of us and the people who wrote about these things for a living figured that this series was a very even matchup and there's no doubt that it actually was. Even Emil the Cat Francis, the Rangers general manager coach, figured it to be a long, close checking series, and that is exactly how it unfolded. And at least in game one, Emil was completely correct. It was a long game, extra time, and it was close. The Rangers, having won in the raucous Chicago Stadium, we're feeling really good about that first game victory. And Vic Hadfield, after the game, offered this. Four straight. We won't be coming back to Chicago after the next three games. Vic Hadfield predicting a four straight series. He wouldn't listen to his coach about it being close. Well, Hadfield's prediction didn't last very long. Game two of the series went Tuesday night in Chicago, and it saw the Hawks even things up right away as they blanked the Rangers completely in another low-scoring affair, the final 3-0 for Chicago. The Hawks net a goal in each period, with Dennis Hall scoring a pair after Cliff Coral had given Chicago a 1-0 lead late in the first. Tony Esposito was solid, if not spectacular, between the pipes for the Blackhawks, and he made 32 saves to earn a playoff shutout. And we'll just give you a little bit of what Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times, uh, how he described this game. 
Gerald writes often flat-footed against the pressing Hawks, who looked clearly superior in every aspect of the game. The New Yorkers were guilty of repeated offsides, intercepted passes, and an inability to create a, a sustained press. As a result, there was no miracle finish and overtime victory such as the Rangers managed at Chicago Stadium on Sunday. Eddie Jockerman was nearly as good as he was in that game. The Hawks beat him in the first period when Stan Makita first elbowed the gray-haired goalie and then compounded the injustice by simply sitting on him. Although Makita is a bit of a splinter, he's really light, Jockerman couldn't pick him up, and Cliff Coral was credited with a goal as the bouncing puck rolled past the prostrate goalie. In the second session, the Rangers were making a desperate effort to wrap the disc past Tony Esposito, the Hawk goalie, who turned in his first shutout in the National Hockey League playoffs. But it was not to be they couldn't beat Esposito. A two-man breakaway spearheaded by Dennis Hull caught Jockerman alone. Dennis smacked a high hard shot over the goalie's head and it went right into the top corner of the net. And then in the third, Bobby Hull's younger brother got the final goal of the evening with Jockerman on the bench and the Rangers net empty in the last 15 seconds of that third period. Blackhawks three, Rangers nothing. So it was back to Madison Square Garden in New York City for the third game of the series Thursday evening. And this time, uh, the Rangers once again went ahead in the series. Uh, Vic Hadfield, of course, had egg in his face for that erroneous prediction after game one. Well, Vic redeemed himself big time by scoring three times as the Rangers cruised to a surprisingly easy 4-1 triumph over an uncharacteristically docile Chicago squad. Hadfield's scoring outburst, however, was likely more due to the play of the real star of the game, and that was center Jean Rattel, who was the pivot on the line with Rod Gilbert and Hadfield. Rattel assisted on all four New York scores, including Rod Gilbert's first period goal, which proved to be the game winner. The Rangers set a few team records in this one, and Dave Anderson of the New York Times uh, outlines all that. Vic Hatfield, John Rattel, and Rod Gilbert stirred the ghost last night in the 8th Avenue parking lot where the old Madison Square Garden once was. By producing all the Rangers' goals in a 4-1 victory over the Blackhawks, the line mates collaborated to tie four club records and establish another in Stanley Cup competition. Hatfield had the most goals ever in a game for a Ranger with three. Rod Gilbert has now the most career Ranger playoff goals. He's got 16. Jean Rattel, the record for most points in a game by a Ranger, four. And the most assists in one Stanley Cup playoff year. Once again, that's Rattel, who now has amassed seven helpers in this year's playoffs. Rattel also set a club high with four assists in one playoff game, erasing uh, Phil Watson and Don Raleigh from the record book. Other ghosts affected by these records were Frank Boucher, Brian Hextall Sr., Neil Koval, and the last Ranger to produce three goals in the Stanley Cup game, and that would be Penty Lund. Vic Hadfield was asked what he thought of breaking Penty Lund's record, and Hadfield said, I never heard of Penty Lund. How long ago did he do it? So the next game was Sunday afternoon, going to be nationally televised. And all we can say about game four was so much for close checking and defensive hockey. The Blackhawks, pretty well given up for dead by many. Stan Fischler, in fact, had a story in the Toronto Star gleefully describing how New York was now in line to win the Stanley Cup this year. He wrote that story after Hadfield's hat trick in the first game. Kind of handy early for Stan to be uh, awarding the Stanley Cup. But then again, that's Stan Fischler. Well, the Blackhawks came out and decimated the Rangers in a 7-1 to shellacking right at Madison Square Garden. And we'll let Gerald Eskenazi tell this story. A deadly, perfect rebound performance by the Blackhawks caught the Rangers flat-footed and the Chicagoans skated to a 7-1 to route to even their Stanley Cup semifinal series 
at two victories apiece. Rangers defenseman Tim Horton said we could have had him in the palms of our hands if we'd have won this game. While 17,250 Madison Square Garden fans and a national television audience watched, they must have wondered how the two teams can do about faces so suddenly, especially how the Blackhawks soared, helped by an early goal and continual forechecking by quick-handed forwards. Bobby Hull, he didn't score a goal, but he had three assists in the game with a virtuoso assortment of moves, shift, and deeks, summed up the victory neatly. It's the individuals who want it most who win the Stanley Cup. At playoff time, everything is all in the mind. The Hawks got the quick lift that started their adrenaline moving midway through the opening session. Danny O'Shea drew out Eddie Jackman and passed to Jim Pappen who deposited the puck in the Ranger goal. Before the second period began, the stitch cut on Jackman's left hand, injured when Hull stepped on it in a game last week, opened and began to bleed. Jackman continued, but for the first time in this 4-7 of seven series, the Blackhawks got to him. Bill White ripped home a screenshot. O'Shea scored on a two-on-one breakaway. And Stan Makita, who faked the pass to his right, shot and got the puck in on Jockman's far side. It was 4 nothing with the second period drawing to a close and the New Yorkers could do little about it. Tony Esposito, the Hawks goalie, has said he wants to outdo Jackman and settle which of the two is the National Hockey League's top netminder. Well, Tony on this night received superb help from his defense. Coach Billy Ray of the Blackhawks countered, a big save on one end means a good play starting toward the other end. And that pretty well explained to some degree why it's so important for the Rangers to score first in a game and they did not here. As commanding as the Rangers were on Thursday night when they trounced the Hawks 4-1, they were as blunted by the Chicagoans yesterday, rarely forming plays and losing the disc repeatedly and not getting sticks on bouncing pucks anywhere near Esposito. The Hawks kept up the pressure in the final session when Jills Villemer replaced Jackman in what was already a lost cause. So we would go into next week with the Rangers and the Blackhawks having solved nothing, a series tied at two games apiece, which is exactly where we figured it would be at this point. And these final three games are sure to be uh, gathering our attention and keeping us spellbound. It's going to be a great series, and one of these two teams is going to compete for the Stanley Cup. While the Rangers and Hawks were battling, it was the upstart Minnesota North Stars taking on the Montreal Canadiens, fresh off the upset win over the Bruins. Minnesota would be hopelessly outgunned, everybody knew that, and they were hoping maybe they could steal an early game or two in the series while the Habs tried to recover from some post-upset hangovers. Uh, as a result of that unexpected victory, everybody thought maybe the Habs might just be a little bit overconfident and the North Stars were hoping to take advantage if that would be the case. Now, despite that thought being in everybody's mind, the Habs were, of course, huge favorites going into game one and the results of that game did nothing to alter anyone's view. The North Stars uh, just weren't in the game. Uh, they were hoping for some sort of uh, post-upset letdown for the Habs, but that wasn't going to happen in the first game. Montreal blasted Minnesota by a score of 7-2. to two. Jacques Lemaire was the guy credited most with the, the Canadians winning this one because actually in the first period, Canadians started out like they were a bit hungover from the Boston uh, win celebrations. Minnesota led one nothing after the first period, but Lemaire suddenly came out in the second period. He scored three goals in that middle frame, and that appeared to awaken the Canadians. It almost looked like they, they were sleepwalking through the opening 20 minutes. Minnesota played Montreal by, uh, outplayed Montreal by a fair margin in the first, but after Lemaire scored his first goal at 548 of the middle frame, the Habs 
were never headed. North Stars coach Jackie Gordon decided to go with veteran Gump Worsley in goal for Minnesota, and he did not blame the Gumper for the huge loss. He said that Montreal took over the game after their first goal by Lemaire. Gordon did, however, acknowledge that for game two, he would be going with Cesar Maniego between the pipes, but Jackie was quick to point out that he had planned to alternate his two goalers throughout the series anyway, so Maniego going in game two is no surprise and is not a deviation from the original plan. Well, we understand that the Vic Hadfield disease is going around the league these days. Mark Tardif was the latest to suffer from foot and mouth disease. Tardif summed up what pretty well most were thinking. The All-Stars were destined to be yet another of the 1967 expansion teams who would never win a game against one of those established clubs. And I refuse to call those established Cubs the original six. It's a terrible misnomer that really never should have been used. Anyway, Mark Tardif had this to say after the game. We weren't ready in the first period. But now we're ready and we'll win in four straight games. So Thursday's game at the Montreal Forum was expected to be yet another stepping stone on the Habs' ascension to the Stanley Cup Final as they faced the North Stars in Game 2. In Game 1, Minnesota had given no indication that they would be any different from the St. Louis Blues, the only other expansion team to play in a, in a playoff series against one of the old teams. However, on this April Thursday night, History was going to be made. For the very first time, a team from the new group would actually defeat an old club in a Stanley Cup playoff game as the North Stars unbelievably jumped out to an early 4 to nothing lead with three of the goals in that first period being set up by former Canadian Danny Grant. North Stars then hung on for a, a, a completely shocking 6-3 victory over Montreal. In fact, though, only some good work by Stars goalie Cesar Maniego kept the Habs, who fought to the very end, from tying it up in that third period. While Minnesota's win was completely an unforeseen upset and history-making, as we mentioned, there was another incident in the game that actually took away from Minnesota's victory. Uh, and this happened on the Montreal bench in the third period. And it's almost unbelievable given the proud history of the Canadian. And Ted Blackman of the Montreal Gazette happened to see it. And he did report on this uh, kind of serious incident. And it was maybe a port would portend things to come for the Habs. Ted Blackman wrote that John Ferguson's previously concealed displeasure with Al McNeil's coaching erupted into public rage uh, when the volatile left winger protested his third period benching by throwing a bench side temper tantrum and stopping from the rink before the game had even ended. Fuming and banging his fists on the boards with each line change, Ferguson finally thrashed his stick into splinters after the last Minnesota goal, threw it over the team's stick box as he barged into the dressing room in purple fury at 19.36, 24 seconds left in the game. David Molson said, I've never seen anyone as childish as John Ferguson. Wisely, before heated words could turn the incident into an irreparable feud, Ferguson dressed without showering and fled into the night before the media was permitted access to the clubhouse. He had already delivered the message in a display of flaming anger visible to every spectator who was looking in that direction. Asked to comment on the benching and subsequent uh, peak, Al McNeil explained his position quietly and firmly. I set up three lines for the third period. I thought those three lines could pull the game out. I've done it before, and I thought they would click. I can't operate any other way. That's the way I run the show. McNeil added, until Ferguson gets permission to go behind the bench and change the lines, that's the way I'll run it. And if I don't run it right, I'll hear about it soon enough. McNeil said that Ferguson wasn't benched because of two first period penalties that had cost the Canadians two goals. The second after an elbowing infraction that some thought was absolutely needless. He said he merely set three lines and he thought he could score the necessary goals that way. 
He wants to win. I want to win too, said McNeil. And I'll try to win my way. Sam Pollock, ever uh, the politician trying to be uh, diplomatic in this case, said, I don't know anything about it. I didn't see it. And I didn't ask anyone about it. By the time I got down there from the box upstairs, everything was quiet. You know how long it takes to get down there from where that box is? Yeah, it it takes a while to get down there, but not long enough to prevent Pollock from reaching the room within seconds of the final siren. The room was locked longer than usual, more than 10 minutes after the game, and when it was opened, half the team had already departed. The players would offer no comments on the proceedings, save for the one who revealed Fergie. Fergie hadn't bothered to shower. Most were concerned with Ron Wick's refereeing. We can't adjust to him, McNeil said. He refs uh, a very funny game. So that sent the series back to Minnesota with the unlikely status of having each team having won a game. And in 1971, so unlike we have 50 years later, the games in the Land of Lakes would be on Saturday and Sunday, back-to-back affairs. Could the Stars take that Game 2 momentum back home and fashion an even more spectacular upset than what Montreal had pulled off against Boston? All of a sudden, that seemed entirely possible by now. Well, before the Saturday game, uh, much of the talk by the uh, commentators, by the writers, people on the sports shows were saying uh, that dissension was rampant among the Montreal ranks. And John Ferguson uh, had been asked by many people to comment on what happened. John was avoiding reporters. He was avoiding anyone. He wasn't talking. But Al McNeil was. And all he said was that as far as he was concerned, the incident is considered closed. He says, I'll talk to you about anything else, but the matter with Ferguson is over. Well, game game three in Minnesota was not anything you could describe as a memorable Stanley Cup contest. The Canadians took a, a relatively easy 6-3 to three win over the North Stars, and McNeil after the game said, we can't afford to let up yet. They're a very good club. Anything less than a total effort just won't do. Canadians were jubilant after the game, but McNeil kept the dressing room door closed for several minutes before he let the newsman in. It was a good game, Al said. Obviously, we got a better start than the last game, which of course is what we needed. Coach Jackie Gordon was probably a little exasperated as he said that the North Stars actually played the better games in Montreal. He said we checked better and we stayed on top of the puck. It could possibly have been just a little bit of nervousness before a very raucous and packed house in Bloomington. The North Stars just couldn't mount any type of consistent offense against Canadians who, unlike Thursday night, skated and forechecked Minnesota into almost total submission. With the forwards playing so well, the defense naturally followed suit, and the result was Minnesota spent most of the night trying to regroup after seeing the offensive plays repeatedly broken up. Coach Gordon commented, I don't know why, but for some reason, we change our style when we play at home. We always try to stick handle in instead of firing it in, getting pucks deep, as they say in 50 years later. But we always try and fire it in and then go in after it. We try to get too cute and we shouldn't. Gordon's original plan had been to play Gump Worsley in goal, but he had to switch to Cesar Maniego when the Gumper injured his groin during the pregame warm-up. Gordon said, I don't know when, when he'll be back. I know the last time he had a groin injury, he was out for quite a long time. That probably means that you're going to see Cesar Maniego for most, if not all, of the rest of this series. So the next day, Sunday, would be Game 4, and the Canadians were expected, now that they had found their scoring eye, they were expected to take a 3-1 stranglehold lead in the series. Uh, Even Minnesota fans were almost resigned to the fact that the Canadians now were really rolling again. But once again, the unexpected took place in this the most improbable playoff years the north stars rose up and they clipped the canadians wings by a five to two score and suddenly this series was inconceivably tied at two games apiece we have this report from the 
Canadian press. Almost everyone laughed in the forum in Montreal Thursday when the North Stars set out to outplay Montreal Canadiens and win 6-3. It was the first time an expansion team had ever won a Stanley Cup game from an established club and the forum fans thought it was a crude humor from the team that had eliminated the Boston Bruins in the first round of the playoffs. Canadians, they said, deserved their little departures from normal. After all, who figured that they'd ever eliminate the Boston Bruins? Canadians gave everyone cause for more speculation and concern, ridicule, or enjoyment on the weekend. They were the first team to lose to an expansion team, and they also became the first team to lose two games in a playoff series to an expansion team. Now, the worry is gnawing at them, and they could become the first team from the old division of the National Hockey League to lose a series to a team from the new section. And that seems, as we've said, almost inconceivable, an unbelievable idea at the very least. Canadians who went into Bloomington with a 1-1 tie in the best of seven semifinal established their superiority, at least that's what we all thought, was Saturday night 6-3 victory. But on Sunday, the North Stars looked just as formidable. They took a 5-2 win to tie the series again and the fifth game will be played in Montreal on Tuesday night. John Beliveau scored both goals for the Canadians in that game, and other than his fine play, the rest of the team just seemed to be slumbering out there. The Canadians submitted to the all-out assault that has transformed the North Stars from an ordinary expansion team to a tough playoff crew. The Stars, with encouragement from the capacity crowd of about 15,500, subdued the Canadians in the second half of the game. Murray Oliver, who was once called nothing but a loser by Toronto Maple Leafs president Stafford Smythe, he didn't have a lot of opportunity to score playoff goals in his earlier NHL years. That was when he was with Detroit, Boston, and of course Toronto. Well, he scored his sixth and seventh playoff goals in this playoff season. Teddy Hampson, John Paul Parise, and Danny Grant scored the others. Cesar Maniego was in goal for the North Stars once again, and Ken Dryden played his 11th successive game in goal for Montreal, and people are beginning to wonder if the rookie, who's never played this many games in succession, except during the uh, two-week tournaments in his college career, maybe Ken Dryden is finally starting to tire. But it was Maniego who was rewarding coach Jackie Gordon's faith in him with that win. Gordon said Caesar played one hell of a game tonight. And that's all he really had to say. Maniego, for his part, said, It was a little different tonight for me. We'll have a few people talking now. We wanted to show all the people that we didn't want to be run out of the league by Canadians. Maniego stopped 35 of 37 Montreal drives in the game with Jean Beliveau being the only Montreal player able to get a puck past him and <laughs> Maniego readily admitted he blew it on Beliveau's second goal that tied the game at 2-2. Maniego said John blew his original shot but I blew it too. By the time he did get the shot away I had moved out of position in anticipation of what was supposed to be the first shot. So now the series moves back to Montreal for a Tuesday night clash with this set as well as the Ranger Blackhawks set. Both series now boiling down to just being best of three affairs and in a best of three, everyone knows darn near anything could happen. Well, in, in other hockey news, uh, well, one more story we have for you this week. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins making some news. The National Hockey League was apparently accepting an offer from a group from Pittsburgh to buy the team. Uh, Bill Hufelder of the Pittsburgh Press actually penned an interesting story this week about how the front office of the Penguins has been running over the last couple of years. And maybe this gives you some insight into why the team is having so much trouble off the ice. This is not a reflection on Jack Riley or Red Kelly, uh, but here's what Hufelder had to say about what the goings-on in the Penguins' front office. 
Last summer, a truck salesman approached Kent Bowen, the treasurer of the Penguins, with a plan. In exchange for free use of a light truck to transport the team's equipment between the Civic Arena and the airport, the salesman would get a handful of season tickets and a full-page program ad for the firm that he represented. Well, Bowen agreed, but by Christmas, the truck... Still not had been delivered. Indeed, the Penguins had bought the Brooklyn Bridge not once, but twice. You see, this salesman's name was John Zamperini, who had hoodwinked the club before, catching on as Director of Public Relations two years ago. Zamperini claimed, among other things, to have led the Pacific Coast League baseball league twice in hitting but in fact the closest he ever came to the pcl was reading the batting averages in the sporting news two days after accepting the penguins job he of course resigned now coming up this week the penguins are going to have new owners and maybe the failures of this office group uh which is been the Keystone Cops sort of thing or a Max Senate comedy since 1967. Maybe these failures can finally be corrected. Up until now, there had been no firm hand to control the front office. It's been loosely divided into private domains almost from the very beginning, one executive often intruding on another's territory. At mid-season, just this past year, Chuck Wheeler, who's a young marketing expert, bluntly went into the, the locker room and told the Penguins players, I put the people in the building, now it's your job to keep them there. It was Wheeler's job to issue attendance figures for each home game. The crowds unquestionably were big league, at least in their knowledge of the game. But as the Penguins' P.T. Barnum, Wheeler used a device that was not. In 17 of the 39 home games, he managed to scare up a few fans, real or imagined, in the attendance figures to give the Penguins an added thousand or so in the count. For example, the crowd figure would be announced at 9,021 when it was actually 8,971. Another example of how things have been run around the Penguins, the first president of the franchise was a politician, a state senator by the name of Jack McGregor. Jack believed in the spoils or the nepotism system for hockey. It must work in politics as well as it would work in hockey. So he hired his father-in-law as head of ticket sales. In the middle of one season, McGregor's father-in-law took a two-week vacation right at mid-season, which is sort of like a department store shutting down a week before Christmas. On another occasion, McGregor spotted a stranger in the press lounge before a Penguins game, went up to him sharply and said, who are you? The stranger shot back, who the hell are you? The stranger was Bernie Jeffreyon, one of hockey's greatest scorers who was in town on a scouting mission. Another front office official was more than hospitable last season when Coach Harry Sinden brought his Boston Bruins to Pittsburgh. In the Penguins offices, this Penguins official graciously gave Sinden a private showing of the closed-circuit tapes of an earlier Pittsburgh-Boston game. Red Kelly got word of it, and he was absolutely furious. And who could blame him? Shortly before this past season ended, the Penguin staff received another visitor who said he, he was a native from Canada, although he dis displayed none of the usual physical characteristics that Americans would expect of a native Canadian. He said he was interested in buying the Penguins franchise. After lingering in the front office for a few days, having a look around, he left but not before cashing a $300 check. A few days ago, that check bounced. Penguins were bamboozled once again. Let's hope the new owners, and we'll have a little more on that as time goes on, will get this Penguins franchise turned around and running on all cylinders instead of haphazardly, as seems to have been the case right since 1967. So we have come to the end of another episode, folks, and what did we learn 
this time around? Well, we learned the Rangers and Blackhawks are pretty evenly matched and their series is going to be completely up for grabs and that's what we expected. We learned to expect the unexpected in these playoffs as far as the Montreal Canadiens and Minnesota North Stars are concerned. Their series, quite incredibly, was knotted up at two games apiece as well. And we learned that at least one Montreal player, John Ferguson, was extremely unhappy with the coaching of Al McNeil. Could that hamper the Habs-Stanley Cup ambitions? Well, stay tuned and we will find out. So next week, we have for you the uh, final three games of both the Blackhawks and the Rangers series. Both series will get a resolution. And you got to wonder, especially in a Montreal, Minnesota set, could that be another huge Stanley Cup upset in the offing? And we're going to find out that there are some strange rumblings coming out of St. Louis where it was learned by the end of the week that Scotty Bowman was not going to be the general manager of the Blues any longer. The question would be, did Scotty jump ship or was he forced to walk the plank? Stay tuned to find out. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we cannot thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this. Andy uh, will produce podcasts for you. If you're looking to start a podcast up, contact me, and I will hook you guys up, and maybe you can work something out. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides us our intro and exit music. And if you ever get a chance to see them live when things open up again, don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great show. Uh, other musical pieces in the show come from Andy Cole. He actually writes a lot of the music that you'll hear in the background, and he does the sound effects as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, the Toronto Global Mail, and of course, the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can get the podcast every week on the Hockey Podcast Network. Every day, you can get us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page, 50 Years Ago on Hockey, and a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And of course, you can download us through your favorite podcast app. The Stanley Cup uh, playoffs are moving very well, very quickly. It's going to be a great finish, and we'll be with you there all the way. On that note, we will see you next time. When the